after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they, that is the wise men, departed to their own country by another way. Father, we ask you that you would please pour out your spirit in such a way that the word which created the world would create a new creation to build up those who already have made new creations. Build us up under the very likeness of Christ. Against all the opposition we might present to you with our sin, the lies of the world we believe, traps of the devil we call them to great, overcome them all by the power of your word, by your Holy Spirit. main message in this passage is that when God shines a light on his king, the nations come. When God shines a light on his king, in Jesus, nations are irresistibly drawn to him. And what's amazing about this message of this passage, that when God shines a light on his king, in this case, in the passage we just read a star, What's amazing about this reality is that it's not the first time it happens. This instance here where the wise men are flocking to Jesus from the east, they're not locals. They're from far away, from other countries, other religions. When they come in, it's not the first kind of time this has happened. Because God shining a light on His King to bring the nations in is not just sort of a one-time event. It's really, in many sense, the end for which the world was made. This whole world was made to shine a light on King Jesus. And when King Jesus is in the spotlight, the nations of the world that God is drawing, they come in. They worship. They rejoice. They take their delight and offer their worship to Him. And if you go back into the Old Testament, what you find is that over and over and over and over and over again, God says to His people, when I put my king under the spotlight, the nations are drawn in like a tractor beam. They're, they're, they're just pulled in to come and to worship Him. And so what I want to do this morning is begin by reading to you from the Old Testament. And I want you to see in the Old Testament a picture of God's King under the spotlight with the nations being drawn to Him. And then I want you to see a poem about the King being exalted and the nations drawing, coming close to Him. And then I want you to see a promise of the King being lifted up, being shone on, if you will, and then the nations drawing in to worship Him. Let's begin by heading back to 1 Kings 
chapter 10. That's in what uh, Charles Swindoll called the pots and pans of the Old Testament. So if you can rummage through the back counter there and find 1 Kings, uh, you may find it has less notes in your Bible than some other portions. Hopefully that's not the case, but it's not a part we're often familiar with. But it, it offers one of the three histories of the Old Testament. First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Samuel give us these histories of the whole nation of Israel. And in 1 Kings chapter 10, we're really at the high point of the whole history of the nation. 1 Kings chapter 10, Israel, maybe you know a little bit about their history, has been taken out of slavery in Egypt. They've been brought into the promised land. They've gone through a time of turmoil where they had judges and all kinds of oppression. And now they've got a king. And not just a bad king like Saul or a great king like David, but now really a settled king. A king whose name, name, name means peace. He's in charge. And the temple's been built. Wealth is just abundant in Solomon's reign. This is the good old days for Israel right here in 1 Kings chapter 10. Everything's going right. Everything that it looks like God promised to the Old Testament. You'll get a land. You'll have a king. You'll have a land flowing with milk and honey. It's all happening right in 1 Kings chapter 10. It's like the light's turned on. It's like everything's going well for Solomon. And at that very moment, the Queen of Sheba, who's a queen from Africa, it's debated where exactly she's from. Some would say Ethiopia. But this queen from a long way away, she's not a local. She's like, i got to see this. I've heard this is a different kind of kingdom. I've heard this is a different kind of king. And i got to make a trek to go see this. And I'll just read it. And if, Well, if you can't see the parallels with Matthew chapter 2, I don't know what to do for you. 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 1. Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, now notice that Solomon's fame wasn't his own. It was concerning the name of the Lord. May God do that for all of us. That if we're at all famous or at all known, we're known for the name of the Lord. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told them all that was on her mind, and Solomon answered all her questions. Now, just in case you're unfamiliar with human nature, rulers don't go to other rulers and tell them all the things they're ignorant of and wait for answers, okay? We're not seeing any trips from Xi Jinping recently over to Biden to say, would you tell me all of your great wisdom? No one's traveling to Putin and saying, answer all my questions. No, they keep their cards close to their sleeves or to their chests and assume and communicate that they've got all the answers. But here's a woman so in awe of another's wisdom that she tells him all her mind and he answers all her questions. And then we're told, and when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, verse 4, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials and the attendants and his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. 
She was breathless. When was the last time you heard a world leader say, I met with my compatriot at the G7 and I was breathless? Something special is happening here. She's seeing the wisdom of God on Solomon the man. Solomon the king. Solomon the son of David. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it and behold, the half was not told me. That's amazing. Everything else in life, I don't know if you noticed this, everything in life disappoints. You know, you, you hear, oh, it'll be amazing. It'll be great. And so someone comes along and says, and it only costs you $150 to get in. And you go in and you're like, that was worth 75, maybe 80. But she goes, it wasn't even half of it. I didn't even hear the half of it. So amazing what I saw in God's king, in God's land. Your wisdom, the end of verse 7, and prosperity surpass the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who was delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord has loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones, never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. When the light shines on God's king, the nations cannot help but flocking in and offering their worship and declaring His work. There it is in a picture. Now let's look at it in a poem. Look at Psalm 72. Psalm 72. Uh, remember, these books of the Bible, they're not written one after another. They're often, the writing is often separated by hundreds of years, sometimes different cultures, different authors. And yet amazingly, they keep picking up on the same themes. Keep making the same points. It's almost like there was a divine author behind all the human authors who wrote the Scriptures. This is a prayer, Psalm 72. We're told it's of Solomon. I'm not sure if that means Solomon wrote it or if it's a prayer of, for Solomon. It's, it's definitely a prayer for the king. Whether Solomon is praying it for himself or whether others prayed it for him, I'm not sure. But it's a prayer for the king. This great king who was the son of David. And essentially, it's just it's praying for his star to rise. It's praying for... A, light to shine on His kingdom. And it's amazing to see what happens when His kingdom prospers. Verse 1 of Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. Let it be a land flowing with milk and honey. May He defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy. And crush the oppressor. May they fear You while the sun endures. 
And as long as the moon throughout all generations, may he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. He's basically praying, may, the, may this king have, have just the ultimate reign. R-E-I-G-N. And there will be this ultimate kingdom established where there's justice, where the poor get a fair shake, where the oppressors are destroyed. All of this is happening under His reign and it's happening from sea to sea. From the Mediterranean all the way over to the Dead Sea. It's covering the land of Israel. And you ought to expect it. You almost ought to expect it. Verse 9. May the desert tribes bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish, that's way over maybe in Spain, and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba, now we're down in Africa, bring gifts. May all the kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and on the needy and saves the lives of the needy. Skip down to verse 15. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. King prospers. Nations come in. They got gold in their bag. They can't wait to offer it to him because he's worthy. Isaiah chapter 60, a passage we were in not too long ago. Maybe you remember that in Isaiah chapter 60, we're in the last third of the book. We're in the portion of the book that's looking forward to Jesus, that's focusing our attention on Jesus and the kind of king Jesus will be. And there's this prophecy of Jesus who is the son of David. Isaiah chapter 60 says this, Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and His glory will be seen upon you and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. What's going on? King gets lifted up. The light of God shines on His King. What happens? Nations come in. They can't stop themselves. It's the way it goes. When God's King is lifted up, when light shines on Him, the nations come. That's the way it goes. Now, Matthew is often described as the Jewish Gospels. Written by a Jewish author. It's written in many ways to a Jewish audience. Many of these people knew their Bibles. Many of you just read these passages. Some of you read these passages. Like, I have never heard that before in my life. Well, you are not an Old Testament Jew. But many who would have read Matthew's Gospel would have read this gift of the Magi and it wasn't just like three cool kings to add to your Christmas creche or something like that. It was clearly Matthew saying, this is it right here. This is the king that draws in the nations. This is the king who will be king over kings. This is the king 
to whom all will bow down. So let's just walk through the passage briefly. Just maybe hear it again for the very first time. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Bethlehem's the town of David, of Judea. Judea is the tribe of David. This is important. Matthew's, he's not, he's not doing any of this by accident. He's, he's wanting to tune your mind. This is not an ordinary birth. It's the son of David. It's not an ordinary town. It's David's town. He's triggering all these memories in your mind. In the days of Herod the king. Now, so, what's going on in Jerusalem right now? Or sorry, Jerusalem and Judea. What's going on in this region right now is this area that God had given to His king is currently being led by a Roman usurper. And Herod the king was a tyrant. And he got fidgety whenever he was in trouble. When his wife, his favorite wife, he had many, but when his favorite wife looked like she might revolt against him, he killed her. When his boys, a couple of his boys, looked like they might threaten his reign, he killed them. He was a man of mighty accomplishments. He built the new temple. Uh, he built a harbor. He built, uh, he built auditoriums. He built and built and built. He built a name for himself. But if anyone threatened his territory, they were dead. And so you can only imagine how much he loved it when wise men from the east, people from not around there, come and the question on their mind is, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? It's a threat. It means that he may not be in the throne long. There's someone called King of the Jews coming around. And on top of that, there seems to be something ominous going on because these guys don't just come and say, hey, we're into world politics and we know there's supposed to be a King of the Jews and you're not a Jew. No, they say something a little more intriguing. For we saw his star when it rose. Now, a lot of things have been said about me in my lifetime and about you, but nobody's ever said to me, now, where's your star? I don't have a star. Neither do you. So here's these guys coming into town going, we saw his star. He's got a star. Now, if you've got a star, you're significant. We saw his star. Oh my. And we've come to worship him. So the very threat to Herod's reign is pretty obvious. Something's happening cosmically that moves stars, that brings in a king, that draws in other nations, and moves people to worship this king. And you shouldn't think of three kings. Sorry. Right? The only reason we have three kings in our mind is because there's three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You should probably think a lot more like the Queen of Sheba, a retinue, like a whole army of camels and multiple guys with, with, their, with their hordes of riches waiting to see the King of Kings now knocking on Herod's door. And uh, it says in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. Now, he's troubled. We already talked about that because he's a power-hungry tyrant. And any talk of another king in town is bad news. Why is all Jerusalem in trouble? Because they know the character of 
They know the character of Herod. This is not the kind of guy you want to back in a corner. He'll come out swinging. In the passage we'll look at in the coming weeks, he will commit not genocide, but infanticide. He'll kill all the children under two in Bethlehem. This is a bloodthirsty tyrant of a man. And so he's threatened, so all Jerusalem's worried about it. And so what Herod does, he gets a council together because he's been asked a question, where's the king of the Jews? And so he gets together the experts, verse 4, and assembling all the chief priests, they were in charge of the temple, and the scribes, they were interpreters of the law, the Jewish legal code, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now again, you get a picture of how deeply rooted in the Scriptures the Jewish people were. Because they don't say, let's appoint a 60-day special committee and we'll come back to you with an answer. They're right there. They've got it. They know the Messiah comes from Bethlehem. And so they quote the book of Micah. which says, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, you get a sense of just how bad things are in Israel right now. Because if you're a scribe or a chief priest and you find out that people from foreign nations have come bearing gifts and they're looking to worship the king of the Jews, you should say, I want to go too. This is what we've been waiting for. But there's no indication that anybody's interested in actually going to worship Jesus except the wise men who've been brought in by the star. Everyone else has got info. They passed the theology test. They're disinterested in the actual Son of God. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. He's trying to gauge how old this boy would be. And he's wanting to gauge how old the boy will be because he'll kill all the children that fall into that age bracket. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child and when you've found him, bring me word that I may come and worship him. He's like so many politicians. He's playing religion. But he has no interest in actually worshiping the Son of God. And that's just a warning there. Churches can be full of people playing religion with no interest in worshiping the Son of God. But true religion is not about playing religion. It is about worshiping the Son of God. Listening to the King, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now there's a lot of speculation about this star. Was it Halley's Comet? Actually, Halley's Comet missed Earth by a... It wasn't right around this time. It was about 10 years earlier or later. I can't remember which. Was it the aligning of Jupiter and Saturn? Some people speculate that. Listen, there is no star in the natural world that lands over people's houses. This is a supernatural work meant to pinpoint exactly where Jesus was. It's not simply 
science, it's not simply a regular ordering of nature that Matthew's tapped into, but it's a supernatural work of God where God is using a star He called to point out the Son of God. Notice it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now these guys may have traveled up to 40 days with their camels and their gold and their frankincense and they clearly had followed the star, but they didn't know all the directions. That's why they had to stop with Herod. But now notice how happy they are at the end of their trip. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. I should just probably answer this question before I move out of the story. How much do these men know? How much do they know? Well, I would say we should err on the side of more rather than less. I mean, there's two ways to see these guys. One is sort of zombies, like kind of God-called zombies. Star comes up in the sky. God says, follow that. Like, we will follow. And they're just kind of moving along. But think about the level of knowledge they have. First of all, they come out of the East. We know there were Jewish communities all through the East. Iran and Iraq, Babylon, Persia. There was synagogues throughout those areas. The Jews had spent their captivity in Babylon. So it's very plausible these men had read the very Scriptures I read to you earlier. When they show up for Herod, they, they don't say, we don't know why we're here, we're just following a star. They know therefore the One born, the King of the Jews. And when they get into the house, it's not like they're not like, oh, whoa, this is, I didn't expect that. You got a 20? Anyone got a 20? I mean, this is good. We should give something. They packed gold and frankincense and myrrh for the journey. They came, you might remember it says, for the worship. So although they haven't got your systematic theology or mine, they're not 2,000 years into church history, they haven't watched the full death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we ought to incline to give them more credit than less. These men knew that what they were coming to see was the, was the King of the Jews. The one stars move to proclaim. The one who is worthy of our praise. But even that, I'll just say this, Matthew actually wasn't written for them. The Magi probably never read Matthew. Matthew was written for you, on whom the end of the ages have come, and you know what's going on. They have come to the Son of God to give Him His due, to give Him His worship, to give him gold and frankincense and myrrh. They come, they worship, they give, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. God moves by a dream. This is now the second dream we've had. Or it's actually, sorry, the first, and we'll get a second, with Joseph. The redirects them so that the life of the Son of God will be preserved. If they'd gone back up to Jerusalem and said His name's Jesus, He's in that house over there, our salvation is cut short. But God, protecting our salvation, 
making sure it works out to the end, gives them a dream that leads them away from giving any intel to Herod. Four glorious pictures. 1 Kings 10, Proverbs 72, Psalm 72, Isaiah 60, Matthew 2. What happens? You shine a light on God's King. And the nations come in. Well, what can we learn from this? What can we learn from this? I want to give you at least three glorious truths. Four glorious truths we can learn from this. I'll make the first one really quick. God has raised up the Son of David to bring in the nations. That's just been Matthew over and over and over. Hopefully you recognize these first two chapters of Matthew are are Matthew saying, let me introduce the main character. Let, Let me show you who's the star of the show. Not only the star of the show, but the star of the universe. Let me show you who he is. I want to introduce you to him. And so he starts with the genealogy. And in the genealogy, it says it's the genealogy of the son of David and the son of Abraham. Abraham is the one who would bless the nations. David is the one who would get an eternal king from his throne. Matthew's still beating that drum. Born in Bethlehem. Born in Bethlehem. From the tribe of Judah. Here comes the king. And as soon as he's on the scene, enter from stage left, magi from the east. With gold and frankincense and myrrh. It's like you're getting a little picture of world history right here in this little story. God lifts up a king. And when he lifts him up, the nations come in to worship him. It's why we believe that the mission of the church is impossible to thwart. If we, Emmanuel Baptist Church, will lift up the King, that simple thing, if we will just lift up the King, if we will just say, Jesus is Lord, if we will proclaim the way He was enthroned, He died on the cross and He rose again, if we will say that, speak it, and tell our neighbors about it, and send missionaries to the end of the earth to speak about it, the nations will come. It's been prophesied and pictured and prayed about and promised over and over again. The Son of David has come to bring in the nation. Second thing I want us to learn from this passage is that if you will embrace God's ordinary revelation, you will enjoy God's miraculous revelation. If you will, let me say that one more time and I'll explain it. If you will embrace God's ordinary revelation, then you will enjoy God's miraculous revelation. Here's what I mean by that. We're going to have to deal with something if we're going to enjoy the book of Matthew. If you're going to enjoy the book of Matthew, you're going to have to believe in miracles. Because if you don't believe in miracles, you are not going to be able to enjoy the book of Matthew because it's miracles all day, all the time. It's Jesus doing miracles, miracles being doing around Jesus. I mean, we're not even two chapters in, and a virgin's had a baby, and an angel's appeared out of nowhere, and then a star settled over a house. If you don't believe in miracles, you are not going to enjoy the book of Matthew. You're gonna, your devotions are going to feel like you're reading fairy tales. And we are a culture not accustomed to believing in miracles. 
We believe in the scientific method. You know, you look at it, you test whether it is reproducible, and then you get your result. Now, there's nothing wrong with the scientific method. I love everything that's created. Well, I don't love everything that's created, but I love a lot of what is created. It's good to notice, hey, water boils at this temperature, at this altitude, and there's a reproducible consequence. You can test it and verify it. That's a good thing. But you can't do that with a miracle, can you? I mean, I'd believe in that whole angel appearing. If I could get the angel appear again, I could see it. I don't believe in virgin births. I mean, there's how many have happened in the whole history of the world? One, maybe two? Not verifiable, not real. And so a scientific mindset from a secular perspective, not from a Christian perspective, but a scientific mindset can make the Gospels unenjoyable, unbelievable. Also, our commitment to human rationality. Now, I'm into rationality. I like being rational. But when I say human rationality, I mean as if our minds were the sum total of rationality. Like there was nothing above our minds. Like if I can't figure it out, then it can't be true. God is three in one. Can you figure that out? Nope, can't be true. Jesus is fully God, fully man. How do you do that? I don't know, can't be true. If you come at life believing that the scientific method is the only way of discovering truth, or that your reason is the highest authority, then Matthew will be like some long-ago fairy tale. It won't be something you believe, build your life upon, stake your soul on. If you can't believe in miracles, and all that seems irrational. But here's the thing. If you embrace God's ordinary revelation, then God's miraculous revelation gets very easy to believe. What do I mean? Well, we live surrounded by God's ordinary revelation. And what a God that ordinary is giraffes and orangutans and the Grand Canyon. Quite an ordinary, really. But if you look out on God's ordinary revelation, the fact that we take breaths, the fact that every one of us has an internal sense of right and wrong, the fact that there at the end of my hands are these five fingers able to, with my opposable thumbs, pick things up at my command. I mean, if you just embrace this world that just, well, the Bible says, declares the glory of God. If you are willing to face the world we're actually in, one where the heavens declare the glory of God. One where Romans chapter 1 says that the very character of God and the power of God is displayed in the things that have been made. If you're willing to face the obvious rather than deny the obvious, well, then actually miracles get really easy to believe in. Because if there's a God who created trees and salamanders, and you, then the idea that He could intervene at any point in human history and do more than He normally does is not irrational and does nothing to undermine science. You see, this world declares the glory of God. I mean, if I were to walk into one of your homes and you said, hey, I've got a hobby, and I said, oh, that's amazing, what's your hobby? And you know, let's just come up with something. And you said, like, I, I build uh, model rockets. I build model rockets. 
And you came and showed me this balsa wood model rocket that could go a thousand feet in the air. And I said, that's amazing. There must have been a, a balsa storm for millions and millions of years that's resulted in this balsa rocket right here in your living room. This is awesome. You, you, you wouldn't just think I was an idiot. You'd be insulted. You'd be, I built the balsa rocket. It was me. I'm the creator of this little balsa rocket. And likewise, this world says with God's fingerprints on every part of it, I made this. There is clearly an intelligent designer behind all of this. And not just an intelligent designer, but a God of glory and creativity and majesty and morality is behind all of it. And if you'll face that obvious fact, then miracles do not require to turn your brain off for one second. All we're saying is that the God who made everything and leads the world in His ordered way, following the laws of nature He created, is also able to circumvent those laws for moments and create marvelous little miracles in the middle of them. Which I would just say is a pretty great world to live in. Right? A world where there is an order and a design and you can predict what's going to happen because it's made by God and yet when everything seems hopeless, He can move beyond the normal patterns. What a great world to live in. What a fantastic world to be a Christian in. In a world where sin threatens so many areas of our lives and where impossible circumstances abound to know that God is ordering every single circumstance and there's never such thing as a hopeless one. But He can always break through with His miraculous power. That worldview will help you enjoy Matthew a lot more than a secular worldview. Second thing I want you to notice. God moves the stars in the sky and heaven and earth to bring people to Himself. God moves the stars in the sky and heaven and earth to bring people to Himself. Isn't that amazing? The world we're living in is not a world where the only thing out there trying to see people saved is your verbal witness. The hope of people getting saved and knowing Jesus is not only dependent on you sharing the Gospel. Oh, that's important. They will not know unless they hear. That's vital. But there's a lot more going on in bringing people to Christ than just you. God is orchestrating every... He's orchestrating where the stars are. Where the skies are. Where the storms are. Where the wars are. Where the refugees are. He's organizing every single aspect of the history of this world to draw people to Himself. Sometimes He uses preachers. I love the story of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Someone told me, I tell a lot of Martin Lloyd-Jones stories. To that I say, get used to it. Because <laughs> I'm not stopping now. Martin Lloyd-Jones is preaching the evening service at Westminster Chapel, and there's a man down the street on a bridge getting ready to jump in and kill himself. And as he's ready to jump in and kill himself, he thinks to himself, oh, Lloyd-Jones will just be starting the evening service. I should just go catch one more sermon and then I'll come back here and jump. 
you know it's got a happy ending. So he goes to Westminster Chapel, and just as he opens the door to the church, Lloyd-Jones is praying, Lord, restore the backslider. And he's restored. And he gets back together with his wife and reconciles with his children and becomes an elder in his church and dies a glorious life. God's even orchestrating the impulses of people's hearts to have them walk into a church right at the right time to be saved. And of course, it doesn't just happen to preachers. It can happen, say, with gospel tracts. One of our former members, John Tucker, some of you will know him, uh, he was suicidal in Ottawa, Canada on the um, balcony of his apartment, ready to jump off and kill himself. And as he's about to jump off and kill himself, he thinks to himself, I think I remember someone giving me a gospel tract. I'll just go in and read it and then come back in here and kill myself. Well, John's a pastor now. His salvation worked out a little later. But it doesn't just involve tracts and pastors. God can use all kinds of things. I've got a friend named Sandy Scott. And he was an alcoholic university professor, a nominal unsaved Christian. He was teaching Sunday school, unconverted, drunk continually. And he was getting to a point where he was trying to quit drinking. And teaching Sunday school, unconverted. And he's trying to quit drinking, and he goes to see The Empire Strikes Back, the absolute, unquestionable best movie of all the Star Wars movies. <laughs> and he goes in there, and that's, of course, the movie where we get the introduction of the character Yoda, who's not a Christian figure. He's, Yoda's all about bringing Eastern mysticism to the world. And Yoda says to Luke, there is no try. There's only do. And Sandy starts thinking, I've been trying to get my right life with God. I just need to rely on what He's done. Not, not what Yoda intended. <laughs> but that week, he's back at church and he's singing Amazing Grace and the Gospel of God comes home to him and he's converted. Deeds Burlogger, one of our deacons, is just filling his life with drunkenness and mixed drugs. Marijuana and um, synthetic drugs. It's amazing when you hear Deeds' story that he can think. And he's walking down the street and he sees on top of a church a cross burning with fire and a voice from heaven says, read my word. So he goes to the nearest bookstore and steals a Bible. <laughs> and he read the Bible and read the Bible until he was converted. And by the time he was converted and figured out that he ought to return the Bible, the bookstore had gone out of business. But he did try. The heart was there. Matt and Jamie Click were missionaries to China before they were part of our Emmanuel Network church in El Dorado, Kansas, or pastored with that church. And Matt was out one night in China looking to share the gospel, but they were tired. It was the end of a long day. And uh, they weren't sure how to, they thought they should probably just go home, but they thought there's one more road, one more road to one more village. We'll just walk up one more road, go to one more village. And they, they did. And they got to this village and they walked into the store and they started telling them they were Christians. And one of the kids goes, my teacher, my history teacher is a Christian. So they go and meet this history teacher. The history teacher 
who was a Christian had never met a Christian before in his life. He'd gotten saved on the internet. And it wasn't until Matt and Jamie Matt, Matt walked up that road and met him that he met his first ever Christian. That led to a Bible study, led to his friend getting saved. Because God moves the stars and the skies and heaven and earth and everything to bring people to His Son. And believers, we don't need to wait for another star in the sky. Jesus said to the church, you are the light of the world. Don't put your light under a barrel. Let it shine. And when your good works shine before men, they will, they'll do just like the Queen of Sheba. They'll just do just like the wise men. They will glorify your Father who is in heaven. Last point. Okay. So I got a worldview that lets me enjoy Matthew. God displays Himself in everything. And does miracles. Virgin births. Angels speaking. Children born in Bethlehem according to prophecy. I got that worldview. And I believe God moves heaven and earth to bring people to His Son. But here's the question. Has He brought you? Have you been brought to the Son? Do you worship Christ Jesus? Are you moving against the grain of the universe? Or with it? Do you work? Yes, yes, yes. He brought His Son from the tribe of David. That King was lifted up. That King is meant to save all the nations by dying on the cross for sinners and being raised again from the dead to show His triumph over sin and death. Do you worship Him? Do you worship Him? Well, these magi give us a beautiful picture of what it looks like when you do. Notice the first thing that characterizes Biblical conversion, biblical worship. It's joy. It's joy. Not what you're expecting out of religion? That's okay. Get used to it. Jesus does not usually give us what we expect. It's joy. When they saw the star, which they knew was going to lead them, this is verse 10, to the King of the Jews, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They're coming out of their skin. We traveled 40 days through deserts. We've been following a star. We, we, we got past that king guy named Herod. And now here we are in Bethlehem and we have arrived at our destination and their, their response was joy. And I remember years ago when I was not a Christian, I had no reason not to kill myself. I had no reason. My life is a mess. There was troubles all around. I, I had no reason to think anything would get better. I had no hope of any life after death. I had no reason not to slit my, my, my wrists and kill myself. And then all of a sudden I started hearing about Jesus. And how in Him all the universe and life had meaning. Without Jesus, the world is just an empty echo chamber. You just say, hello out there, and there's nothing to respond back to your echo. But in Jesus, every single thing you could ever do has significance. 
Every single thing is a response to Him. He remembers every word you've ever said. He'll bring you to judgment for everything you've ever done. He'll guard your life and save you and establish you in heaven if you believe in Him. Everything has this significance. And there's so much joy in that. But not only significance, but forgiveness. You have all this guilt from the things you've done, all this guilt from the ways you've walked, all this awareness that you have sinned against God, and He comes and dies on the cross for sins. It washes all your sins away. There's joy when you find Jesus. And if you haven't found joy, you haven't found Jesus. And not only is there joy, but there's reverence. There's reverence. Do you see this? And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. It's, it's interesting. It says they fell down and worshipped him, but the, the word worshipped actually means fell on their knees too. So it's like they fell down and fell down. They, 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 they were on their knees. There's many people, you listen to them, and they can, they can just destroy your thoughts with a Christian worldview. They can take their Christian worldview and just show the stupidity of secularism. They can show the stupidity of atheism. They can take their Christian worldview and just decimate idols. But have you worshipped? Have you seen God is greater than you? God is holier than you? God is worthy. Your, your treasures, they're not for you. you. You want to give them to Him. Have you worshipped? When you're alone in your Bible, are you just trying to gain information? Or are you worshipping the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Paul says we are those who glory in Christ Jesus. We worship Him. And then finally, they sacrifice. Their Christianity was full of rejoicing, worshiping, and sacrificing. Now, I told you earlier, we know a few things about kings. They don't go to other kings for advice. They don't have other kings take their breath away. And they don't give other kings their money. Unless it's in their own interest. But here we are. These guys have got gold, frankincense, and myrrh, these incredibly valuable ointments, fragrances, and metals. And they're unwrapping their gifts and they're giving them to the Son of God. There was no return on investment, earthly-wise. They went back to their hometowns. They just gave of what they had to Jesus. That's a Christian. Rejoicing in Christ bowing the knee in submission and reverence to Christ. Sacrificing and giving to Christ because He's worthy of your stuff more than you're worthy of your stuff. Your stuff is not meant so you can enjoy on a me day. Your stuff is meant so that it can all be given to Him to glorify who He is. When Jesus Christ is exalted, the nations come in. That's who we are. We're the nations who came in. Look around this room. That's the nations that came in. You got American nations, you got African nations, you got Canadian nations, you got, you got all kinds of different nations. Japanese nation. Jesus gets lifted up. The peoples come to him. And they worship, they rejoice. 
and they give. Let's pray. Father, You are glorious. You are marvelous. You are majestic. We pray, Lord God, that You would please just help us to see it over and over again. You lift up the sun and the nations come in. Lord, help us to be a congregation who in our preaching, our work lives, our family lives, every aspect of our lives, with our stuff, we seek to exalt You. We trust, Lord, You will bring in the nations. Amen.